Yeah, so actually, one of the when I first started this, uh, Ed, you're actually one of the uh, first people that I had in mind uh, for the podcast when I first started going out. Um, Thank you. you uh, Madalena, uh, Seth uh, Flaxman, for example, uh, several other people, um, less in the statistics and more in the in, uh, uh, the engineering profession. And yeah. the reason I had uh, your you particular guys in mind was that um, well, because you gave such great presentations, and so like the the clarity of it. I, I actually I remember the first presentation that I uh, saw you speak at. Uh, funny enough, I think it was actually the first time I actually also saw Cynthia Rudin speak. Um, it was actually yeah. in the same uh, session. Um, and I just thought that, you know, like, because the clarity and the effort that you guys put in, it was, I just mm-hmm. thought it's like, if we could just have conferences of only presentations of that quality, um, one, we could have fewer conferences. And two, like, <laughs> they would, like, I would have to go to every conference because um, sure. they were of high quality. And I think that was back in... I would say like 2016, I think. That sounds probably about right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like we were going like real hot and heavy in 2016 conference season. And yes. then unfortunately, 2017 hit and I had to write up. And so basically yeah. then I only knew the insects that crawled under my rock. Um, and so, but yeah, no, um, I'm, I'm really excited. And it is, it is of course, strange um, to have you on. You know, we've been going for about a year now. But yeah, you were one of the people I originally had in mind because um, I liked your presentation so much and just thought- we need to deliver more ed to the people. Um, so well, I appreciate that. Yeah. So I mean, they, it, it should always be a, a proper, uh, you know, proper amount. Like too much egg can be a problem, but I think a little bit wouldn't hurt anybody. Yeah, a, a little bit here and there. Uh, in your life. Yeah, but I, I think. Um, so I, I guess I'm. We we intersect on a few things. One, we're both people who've put a crap ton of effort into, like, for example, presenting well, so that people really sure. got what we're doing. Um, yep. There's also obviously the cognitive bias that we both work in anomaly detection. Yeah. And where I work in, I would say more of traditional anomaly detection, so anomalous observation detection. And yep. I guess as somewhat, as I, I think that you are much more solidly in anomalous pattern detection than I'm in. I'm yeah. more like anomalous observations and anomalous time series, whereas you actually, yep. it's more pattern. Yeah, pattern is a very big piece for us. Yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe that's a good place to start. Um, What is the what is the difference in your mind between anomaly detection, um, for example, the one off observations versus anomalous patterns? Because your bit seems tougher. Yeah. No. Let let me try to. I mean, so this is my kind of view. I developed over, you know, maybe the last decade or so. And so actually, when I talk to my students about this, I teach an exploratory analytics class. And I have a whole module on anomaly detection um, because it's my favorite topic. So I enjoy it. It's my favorite section to talk about. Um, and I think so many questions that we care about in science end up coming down to un- questions of anomaly detection. Um, and so I have a kind of a theory on how I, or a framework for how I think about these things. So I actually, first thing I do is I distinguish between outliers and anomalies kind of personally. And again, I, th- this is not a sort of a, sort of agreed upon by the community is sort of my viewpoint, but I think of outliers and anomalies sort of being um, the same thing and not sort of when you see them, but really uh, trying to better understand um, or differentiate or being what produced them. So I think about like uh, an outlier and anomaly, both as extreme or abnormal out, uh, outputs or outcomes. But with an outlier, it, let, me use, let me use an example. So, so like, let's say fraud detection, very canonical example for, out, for anomaly outlier detection. You know, when you're using your credit card over and over and over again, producing transactions, and so you are a data generating process, you are distribution, um, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. 
Um, and I can observe a bunch of data drawn from the, you know, the Glenn distribution on his, let's say, visa. And every now and then you will make a, a purchase, right? I'll see an observation of on visa that's a little abnormal or maybe extremely abnormal, depending on kind of what's going on in your life. Um, and that <laughs> making it rain. Exactly. Yeah. COVID, COVID, you get saved all that money up from COVID. So now, <laughs> and now, now it's time to spend. Yeah. Just spin, spin, spin. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and so then, so those are outliers because the process that generated it was still the proper distribution, still mm-hmm. Glenn, but it was extreme. And maybe statistically speaking, it was a little bit odd. Whereas if someone stole your credit card and made a transaction, well, then that is an anomaly because an anomalous process generated a mm-hmm. new distribution produced it. Um, and as a result, then what we want to do is the reason why anomalous pattern detection, I think, is very important because what we often want to do is detect the existence of this anomalous distribution, anomalous process. Mm-hmm. Um, and one-offs, it's very hard to do that because I can't distinguish between what was just Glenn making a sort of slight change in behavior uh, or was an actual fundamental shift in what's producing the data. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, And so... For me, the whole point is, is that, well, any singular observation may not look too anomalous on its own. So let's imagine you have a froster, but they're not a you know, dumb froster. They're very smart. Mm-hmm. So their job is to, if you think about your distribution as being just simply like a, really a normal distribution, think about it's normal centered at zero with some thinner deviation. Then if I'm smart, my job is to try to hit transactions that hit right at the mean, right? Yeah. Ever, over and over again, because no individual one of those will look too abnormal because it'll look like a very highly dense area or very likely uh, observation. Um, but the idea is that, well, as a fraudster, because I'm not you, I'm in somewhat constrained to act differently. than you. I might buy gas or groceries or clothes, but I might do those things in ways systematically different than how you do it. I might buy clothes that are too large or too small. I might buy gas, but I buy the unleaded and you buy the premium. I might buy locations often that we don't frequent. So yeah, all these things, different sort of, time zones and things like different, that, different time zones, yeah. right? All these things, like they're similar, but they're somehow a little bit off. And so the point is, if I can find a collection of data that is somehow self-similar um, in time and space or in, in what the actual underlying um, outputs are, but are systematically kind of shifted off or unexpected in some way, then I can identify the existence of the anomalous pattern mm-hmm. versus looking at any one observation that none of them look too off, right? Noise, think about like uh, one example I used early in my career when I first thinking about this question, and it really helped resonate with some of the sort of social scientists I was working with. We we're tasked with trying to detect um, shipments to the country that were contraband. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the example that, you know, if someone's uh, bringing in shipments, shipments into the country along some some port or along some shipping line that's, that, you know, has been known to um, allow for contraband entrance. You know, let's say I say it's pineapples, right? I'm shipping pineapples from someplace, but the pineapple, the shipments are all a little elevated in weight, right? Well, the point is, is that if it was just noise, you'd see some things higher, some things lower, kind of, you know, back and forth, right? If you see systematically error or noise mm-hmm. in one direction, right? That's a pattern of of something being odd, your model's off, or something's going wrong because noise should be distributed equally across. So one piece of noise, one residual, can tell you a whole story, but mm-hmm. you see the collection of them in some time or space all above 
or below sort of the expectation, well, that's a pattern that tells them the odd is going on and worth investigating. Mm-hmm. So I start with outlier anomaly detection as my framework because I think that helps motivate why anomalous pattern detection is actually um, a very powerful way to think about what we want to do and why it's important. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. I have to admit, uh, my mind tracked a little bit when you said, uh, you know, if if you are the fraudster and you're buying different clothes, because obviously um, I can't help but remember that you're both much better dressed than I am and about a foot taller than I am. So it's like, yeah, that one, that one would actually not even be that. That one would pop up. That'd probably quickly. be very easy. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, on and on a, on another note, um, maybe less important than that example is like, you know, for example, in the vital signs I'm used to looking at where you can actually see, uh, for example, when um uh when a vital sign probe is dampened sure. or interfered with in some way, for example, it might actually frequently stick at for the average, but right. the all variation disappears. Yeah. And so for yeah. example, um we'll we'll have uh since many of these vital signs uh these probes need to be calibrated and therefore they're right. actually calibrated towards mean value. So for example, when you take the you know the COVID temperature test that you've been using yeah. all this time and no matter what, oddly enough, they all shoot up to about 96 to 98 degrees. Like they all hit there yeah. no matter what you're pointing it at. Um, yeah. And the fact is when it hits that variation, even at the average, this is yeah. an anomalous data generative process. So no, I, I think I think we definitely agree on what the definitions are for the data generative process. And now the question is like, so what, what, what do you do next? Right. Um, yeah, so then at that point, um, the framing for the question becomes, um, one of, uh, I'll consider optimization, right? So mm-hmm. if I have some expectation for what I should see, what I'm looking for are collections of data points that, again, have some self-similarity, um, but are e- sort of collectively, right, sort of abnormal given the expected distribution. Um, and so what that comes out to being is really um, sort of leveraging uh, a very rich area of statistics and spatial scan statistics or scan statistics more broadly, spatial, temporal, or, or what have you, where mm-hmm. we're scanning over uh, subsets of data, space or time or whatever, and trying to isolate some some units uh, that sort of form the self-similarity, but collectively are odd. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can think about trying to find outbreaks of diseases, um, you know, things like that as a, as a sort of a, maybe a more canonical example. And so for us, it becomes the data set, the very just general data set of transactions or what have you becomes this look, this area which we search in. We're trying to find these collections um, of data records that are um, collectively anomalous for some subset of their attributes. So mm-hmm. it's really a subset scan over, act, over records and over dimensions because you can imagine a situation where, again, if I look at the entire likelihood of the record, likelihood is a product of a bunch of maybe... Um, individual likelihoods of, of each value of the record or some, depending on if you're taking the logs. And you can imagine a situation where like, if I'm taking a bunch of products or sums, I could have one or two pieces that are odd, but the collective, you know, other 500 things added all together tells me, oh, this thing is pretty, you know, pretty, pretty fine. And so mm-hmm. you think about if I take these five records and for maybe these two attributes, right, those 10 values collectively look weird because they're not a, you know, if they were random 10 values, they would all kind of move around, but they all collectively move in some odd direction. So that becomes a scanning over sort of records and attributes. Um, and the reason why that's hard is because, well, scanning over subsets is really computationally expensive. Yeah. Right. And also how do you do it in a way where you still maintain some high power? 
um, that to reject uh, the null hypothesis that that there's nothing going on in this space. Um, and so that's kind of one of the secret sauces that we have is we basically show um, in various pieces of work that I have, I will show that um, many of the goodness of statistics that we're used to. So I do I do things very non-parametric. So I do a lot of empirical distribution yeah. or learn models that are fairly fairly flexible. And um, a lot of ways we compare non-parametric models is looking at the distributions of things, right? So we might use a Kamal Bosmanov test or Anderson Darling, um, Burke Jones, one of these sort of non-parametric tests which are looking at empirical distribution one, theoretical distribution two, or empirical empirical, and trying to say, you know, are the distributions different or not? And what we show is that a large class of them um, satisfy some properties that are very helpful, known as linear time subset scanning. And essentially mm -hmm. what that means is that I can scan over, even if I have N records, there are going to be two to the N possible subsets of records that could be the anomalous ones. Um, but if we sort them in a particularly, um, particularly interesting or purposeful way, um, so there's corresponding priority function that's really important, if we do that sorting, we only have to consider a linear number of them, basically sort them in order and then kind of greedily go the top one, the top two, the top three, the top four, mm -hmm. all the way to, you know, the top N. And we can prove that the subset that maximizes the score, um, um, the, op the subset that we find in that linear set will achieve that same score. So um, it's not... There, there could be multiple subsets that achieve the optimal score. Mm -hmm. This is not guaranteeing that you find all of those or right. any of those. Uh, I'm sorry, all of those. But what it does guarantee is that the one that the one that maximizes this linear set will achieve the optimal score, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. um, and so that lets us actually scan very efficiently, considering only a small number of subsets, but still provably finding the, the subset of data that are, statistically speaking, the most anomalous. Um, or another way kind of intuitively to say is it has the most amount of evidence that um, against the null, essentially. That, that okay. subset, we have the most evidence that there's something odd going on. Mm -hmm. Does that make well, sense? Yeah, no, I, I like that. It, it does remind me, because, um, you know, for me, I did like the, this is one of the first things that popped up when I was looking at your work, is like the fluency that you had between jumping from the statistical to the optimization side. Right. Um and I yeah. thought the part of me was thinking is like, is that part of the sort of the heavily like engineering influenced Carnegie Mellon type? Uh, <laughs> like it, it seems like those things can't be. They are those not are inextricable or is it? Yeah, is, yeah. yeah. The, 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 that, that is, I would say that is not, uh, by, that's not serendipity. That is actually, I think by construction, mm -hmm. um, based on how it was taught. I mean, my, I did my undergrad through my PhD at Carnegie Mellon. So I spent about nine years there. Uh, you know, and so the most formidable years for my, I mean, my argument for my life, but certainly for how I thought about academia and science and the pursuit of truth and knowledge was shaped, you know, on that campus. Mm -hmm. And it's so interdisciplinary. So like my advisors were, you know, one of my advisors was Cognition Lisi, who was a sort of physicist who became a statistician yeah. as well, you know, right? Another one um, is Amelia Havlin, who is a statistician who does healthcare policy uh, and analysis, right? Mm -hmm. Daniel, who, you know, is sort of more pure computer scientist and machine learning person, but was really driven by solving real world impacts in policy. So mm -hmm. not only thinking about machine learning, but also sort of designing systems and thinking about how do I affect policy in a real and tangible way. Um, and so, you know, CMU as a, as a university is very interdisciplinary. And I would argue that the place where I spent most of my time as a graduate student at Heinz College was maybe the 
the quintessential example of bringing people together mm-hmm. from different disciplines, from OR, or operations, research and management, from uh, statistics, from machine learning, from computer science, from information systems, from public policy. From, we have economists from labor and, and um, health economists all sort of in one room, mm-hmm. in one house. And so when, when thinking about work that was important to me and when I'm trying to present my work, thinking about going back to that comment you made about presentation, I had to convince not only computer scientists who kind of maybe bought into things, but I had to convince economists. I mean, pure sort of, you know, economists with PhDs in economics from top 10 schools that what I was doing was relevant to their world as well and had impact in the way they cared about. It. And that's hard as a, you know, young graduate student trying to figure out yourself what's important. But that sort of, I won't call it a crucible because they were, they tended to be pretty willing to support you. But that environment really taught me to not be beholden to any one discipline or idea, but to really sort of find the places where, here's what I think about this question, how can I borrow from economics? How can I borrow from statistics? How can I borrow from optimization? How can I borrow from machine learning? How can I borrow from OR, OM? How can I borrow from these disciplines? Because we're all speaking, um, I would say, you know, different languages, but there's some sort of unifying or some kind of, you know, sort of um, transition, um, transcendent ideas that are there and how do we borrow and speak and bridge things? And I think the bridging part is where you see real value created. Um, so that was my, so that definitely is there. And it's funny because depending on who I talk to, there's some people who say, oh, you're a statistician. And I'm like, not really. I mean, I have friends who are pure statisticians mm-hmm. and they would not consider me a statistician. Some people say, yeah. oh, you're a computer scientist. And I've been friends who are pure computer scientists. They would say, no, nah. you know, so depending on who you ask, I am that other thing that you're not. Yeah. But I, in a way that I got people who are in the other fields, I can have friends, I love statisticians perfectly, mm-hmm. you know, easily speak languages that we that are similar. And so I like that. It's hard when it comes to defining who you are as a person. Yeah. But in terms <laughs> of actually getting work done and solving problems, I work with people who do information theory, statistics, optimization, computer science, and I do, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think hopefully well enough. Um, though I'd say most of my work ends up in stats and machine learning journals. Um, yeah. if, in, in sort of the, when it comes, when it kind of comes down to the final destinations. Yeah. I was, uh, I was wondering a bit, um, when you, cause he, here's like a very subjective bit that I think that okay. you are uh, good to might be able to help, um, unravel for me a bit. Um, so okay. like when you're deciding, like, for example, when you're doing anomaly detection, you're creating this model, you know, you essentially were creating, um, an optimization search regime. Sure. Yeah. I, is that fair so far? Yeah, that's um, fair. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, and, but you could always say, and one, I'm obviously very sympathetic to that, given that I've d- done like literally very uh, similar things where I just said like, okay, I have this statistical problem in uh, anomaly detection. I'm literally going to run an optimizer over this like, yeah. um, and do it Bayesian non-parametric uh, yeah. uh, uh, Bayes opt over this to try to get something that I want. But um, back, to, yeah. back to your work, the alternative is, you know, you could try to create a more complex, purely statistical model to achieve sure. what you wanted. So where where is sort of like the trade off? What works? What doesn't? Um, did you have any successes or failures? What was going on there? Um, I mean, I guess I mean one thing is definitely my training um, and a lot of what I do, um, a lot of what I've been able to exploit uh, comes from you know the the lab and the advisor I had mentioned Daniel Neal before and Seth and I again Seth Seth Lacken, for example and I mm-hmm. you know here Daniel was an advisor um, when we were in graduate school and so I think a lot of how I think about questions 
are, are often governed by that training because I see anomaly detection anywhere. To me, anomaly detection is when a system, and that's very generally defined. It can be like literally a physical system, like the sensor readings on an airplane or the sensor or, you know, like sort of readings uh, from some device um, or a behavioral system, like the transactions you generate with your credit card or things you buy on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And when a system is deviating away from expected behavior or desired behavior, mm-hmm. um, that's the tech, that's the non-detection sort of paradigm to me. And so, and I see that everywhere. I see it in causal inference. I see, I see it in economics. I see it in social science. I see it in policy. Um, and so for me, it becomes a question of, these are the questions that I see and I uniquely see them. How do I frame them in ways that allow us to get at the questions we probably care about? Um, and, and so I am not, I don't, ever, I don't necessarily feel beholden to anomaly section or, or modeling things the way I've always done. Um, I often find it as like just the easiest person to do because it's like a tool that I know very well and mm-hmm. know how to kind of like in a very quick sort of in a very relatively small period of time comparatively set up structures that can answer questions of interest to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have work, for example, that's unrelated, but I have work um, that's uh, looking at causal inference, uh, specifically peer influence in social networks when you have homophily, right? Has absolutely nothing to do with anomaly detection at all. Is that, the, is that one of the ones you do with uh, Cosmos Shalisi? Yes, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. So we have, yeah. we have, uh, yeah, we have it. It's a uh, at a minor revision now uh, at JASA, but like you know, like it's mm-hmm. one of those things where it's like that's purely sort of a question because I did a lot of I actually did a lot of anomaly detection in networks as well um, with a colleague of mine, Skylar Speakman, um, and Daniel um, and Skyler now is um, a director of uh, of uh, machine learning. Um, at uh, IBM Africa uh, in Kenya, uh, we do a lot of work together as well. Um, and so, like again, it's a network because of looking for these sort of subgraphs or subnetworks of anomalous sort of activations, um, and sort of brought me to networks. And then I kind of talk into Cosma and sort of things. You know, as you know, these things kind of grow, but very much not related to anomalous detection whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But a really important question in many policy uh, and business questions that we care about. And so, um, I think for me. Problems. I'm ge- I'm geared towards solving particular sets of problems. Things that mm-hmm. I see. That's my. That's the highest range to me. Of like, what is? Mm-hmm. Where's the impact? What's the problem? What's the important thing we can solve? And I'll bring to bear whatever tools I have available to me mm-hmm. to address that problem. And I, as you mentioned earlier, kind of the engineering part. I, I am not someone who says, "Oh, I have to do work all the time." That. You know, if it doesn't require me to build something new, it's useless. Mm-hmm. I am perfectly fine with taking things off the shelf um, that exist already and mm-hmm. applying them to problems that are important because the problems being solved are important. What I do often find, though, is that our questions we care about, though they, there are some similarities in their sort of structure, they're often nuances. And what I think a lot of people who aren't trained the ways sort of we are do is they kind of like try to like take this and that and kind of staple it together and tape it and try to shoehorn it to make it work. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think as an engineer at heart, I build what I have to build to solve the problem I want. So if what mm-hmm. exists doesn't exist. So the problem I need, I build the thing I need mm-hmm. to solve that problem. Um, and so those, and that's where you obviously you get nice new novel work, novel algorithms, novel theory or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, I'm not beholden to what I do. Yeah. No, that that is an interesting bit because um, 
Uh, usually one of the sort of riffing off this idea that one of the ways that I try to approach my work is one, if I can take something off the shelf that works and apply it, great. However, as you said, nuance means that basically nothing off the shelf is going to work. Like, I mean, it's practically nothing um, unless you are literally taking their, 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 the old data set too. It's like, um, so, and I was actually talking to uh, my uh, supervisor, Steve Roberts now, so probably, oh, this is pre-COVID, but, um, you know, and he was, you know, he does a huge amount of uh, method development and model development. And he's talking about, you know, the challenges where it's like, yeah, you can take this vanilla algorithm, but a massive amount of the effort and a massive amount of the sort of the new innovation about this is how you actually apply to the nuance of the problem at hand. So um, even these people who are, you know, extreme experts, and I consider you also an expert in developing model, model, model development, like I'm, I'm not an expert in that, but um I'm an expert at sticking things together and not making it go haywire. Like I, I think that, that that's my that's special an power. Skill. Yeah, that's a very important skill. But like it's, I, I do view it as like you know putting building blocks together. And the main, you you can so you can do that. Like you can put different building blocks together to address a new problem. But the sure. challenge is you make sure that you weld them together and yeah. that they aren't so completely unprincipled that yeah. stuff just starts leaking out the side. So like, exactly. and so yeah, I, I guess I view it like one. You know, you can build that holistic new model. Yeah, or you can start, you know, welding things together. You don't staple, you don't tape. You weld it together, and it has to be very, um, very, very tailored. Um, I guess this is one of the reasons why I actually really like. I haven't done too much work with them, but uh, copula modeling seems like it's. Oh a, yeah. Yeah, it's like it seems like it's the engineeringist like statistical process that there is because effectively you're taking these different building blocks and yeah. you can do so much. Um, you can do so much tailoring and so much. Um, uh, you know, I, I think, I guess tailoring would be the way, um, yeah, yeah, for each of those building blocks and then you build on the next step and then you build on the next step and then you can tailor each of those. And I found that which will be really interesting. Um, it had, I haven't been able to explore it as much, but, um, do you think, um, what, where would you sort of see like the breaking points of those? Cause I I do recognize there are breaking points in the way that I do things, but is it just, you have to test and see, or do you have a grander theory? Um, so Honestly, I don't. I like to say I had a grander theory, but I don't think I have one. I think for me, I I think a lot upfront on the problem about what it is, and I I try to really break the problem down into its most basic building blocks, mm-hmm. and I try to map it to things that I that I know well um, or understand well, um, and. And so sometimes that will involve then, okay, mapping it to something. And then, well, does it thing map relatively nicely to that? Thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it does, great. We'll start with that. And then, again, like you said, you kind of weld things on top of it and on top of it, top of it kind of build up what you need. Um, and it may be sometimes, it, you know, sort of the first part maps well to this, second part maps well to this, but third part maps only somewhat well to mm-hmm. the other thing. And then, it's like, okay, now is the question that I, now that I have a kind of, you know, a stable foundation, but like my second story is a little wobbly. Am I going to think about, you know, how much structure do I need? Am I building 10 more stories on top of this? Or mm-hmm. they just simply at the end of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so if, if I'm building more on top of it, then I'll start to really think about how do I properly build this thing? If that's kind of the end and the real workhorse was at the sort of foundational level, then I'm more willing to, to, to sort of like deal with this sort of like maybe not approximate mapping. Um, so I think that's where you get into trouble if you are, if you're approximately mapping every story of this thing you're building, mm-hmm. then you get these leaks and wobbliness. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is really a judgment call. And I think that's why a lot of statistics, a lot of methods and things we do, machine learning, I should even say, I just think the machine learning sort of, you know, data science or um, you know, sort of sort of learning algorithms broadly, it, we pretend like these, model, these models and methods are very general, but they often require a lot of training, a lot of ingenuity, a lot of tweaking to make them work, mm-hmm. let's say, really well. They're not yeah. generally perfect. They work well when I built them for the problem I built them for and tuned them for that. And so I think that that's the part where we, we're not, maybe we're being a little disingenuous or maybe not being as honest as we should be about how um, sensitive these things are that we build to um, not only just parameters that we say, high parameters we say, but just kind of like the way in which they are, the assumptions being made and way things that are, that are happening. So um, I don't have a grand theory. I'm all about sort of practically solving the problem however you have to and however you can. But assuming that the the, uh, the scientists, and I think it's approach to myself and hope others do as well, where we're going to be honest um, about it and really think about okay, what is right, what is the correct way. And if we're not getting the correct way, mm-hmm. saying, listen, like this is what I'm doing. Here's the issues with it. Like, you know, it works fine for me, but like don't supply this out of off the shelf because here are the issues I encounter. We often like to hide those things or, um, you know, and there's incentive structures in terms of journals where journals publish that affect those things. But I think as scientists, our job is to find, you know, capital T truth and, and pursue that. And so hopefully we're being honest when we build these things and talk about what they're doing. Yeah. It is, it is interesting. The more I've talked to people, uh, the more I found that uh, without knowing it, the people who I really wanted to bring on the show are also the ones who also uh, really hammer down on the issue of like being a scientist and that they essentially yeah. many of the times they view themselves as a scientist first and yeah. whatever technical skills they need to bring to bear. Great. But they're a scientist first and they're just chopping at it that, that way. What do you, what do you think um, when, when it, when it comes to being scientific on these issues, uh, what do you think are sort of like the, the good critical assessment skills for this? Um, I, I always like to say that people should be always, inductively testing so essentially they need to be testing out their ideas i'm not going to get this right on the first try but the idea is like um they need to make sure that there are their models aren't like deductively wrong for some reason sure. um so isn't like essentially if the math is straight up wrong you're probably not going on the right path um, sure. or you should be really really sure that that's like the last step as you said like if th- this is the final approximation but um also understand that like a lot of the deductive truths of their models does not actually apply to their data. It's just a truth about what's being fed in if you did. So like uh, a frequent thing that I've seen is like people actually, they use a model and then they use the model's assumptions as a statement about the data that they're putting in. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, that, that that's not quite right. Um, let's, let, let's start over and say, here's what we think about the data. Let's make an assumption about the data and then move towards the modeling. But anyway, uh, so what are, what are some of the the traps and things that you've noticed. So, I mean, those are, those are absolutely correct. Um, I think, uh, so, so let me try to, you've thought that you got my mind working in a couple of different places. So let me, let me try to address um, the first part, but let me take us in a direction after that, that I think could be interesting. It's mm-hmm. interesting. So, so therefore I'll, I'll take us there. Um, <laughs> and um, the first part is, yeah, I, I think that you're right that when you build these things, um, you want to be very careful and thoughtful about not letting what you can do dictate what you do do mm-hmm. uh, and what you assume to be like, 
for the math to work out, we make assumptions X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and does that really play out in our data? Well, we're going to assume it does because we're going to, you know, make a regular condition that our, that, you know, we can show that this is mini max if it's just, you know, lip shit, like, well, mm-hmm. you know, but like, does that make real sense? Now I get that we have to make a lot of theoretical uh, conditions or regular conditions. We're trying to prove things. I've done them myself. I get that part. Um, but I guess the part is like the, there, to me, there is a distinction between I am building a model or method or algorithm theory about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm building a model method or algorithm uh, and its practical uses. And what always governs what I do um, is the practical use of it. Mm-hmm. I, I do publish, I do think about statistics sort of at a theoretical point of view often. Um, and often we need, in order to get papers published or get some sort of sort of visibility, you know, prove sort of general truths about things are good. But, you know, a lot of theorems that I read and write are asymptotic, right? And I have no idea when asymptopia kicks in, mm-hmm. right? We have no idea. But like, so like, unless we get rates, right? Like, I don't know what that means. And so what I want to be able to show always, is even if my theory is nice, what I can hopefully show you evidence of in a way that's meaning to be truly persuasive is it fits the data uh, or the context very well, even when theory doesn't kick in yet, or even mm-hmm. if, you know, even if things aren't lipshits, right? Like, uh, you know, here's how it's going to gracefully sort of approach that. So I think um, it depends on your goals. There are some scientists who really think a lot about theoretical things, and I think there's value that. And I think I do think about theoretical stuff as well, but I also think a lot about practical things. And so I think if you're someone in practice, though, if you're using a method or model in practice, your fundamental goal is to try to recover the data generating process, recover mm-hmm. what the yeah. data is telling. And I think this is actually something I've thought a lot about. Um, sort of the, the thing I want to bring us to is that um, there's a lot of... So I think anomaly section is a very powerful lens and framework for a couple of reasons. Because uh, I can frame a lot of questions we care about anomalies. The canonical one, I think, is that the... Um, the model or the expectation for Glenn, historically, historical Glenn is correct. Mm-hmm. And current Glenn transactions may in fact have some um, evidence or some examples of anomalies or things I want to find, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting things, patterns or whatever, right? And that in this case, it may be, again, fraud or shifting your behavior, maybe you got married or children. And so you know, there's some shift in that and I want to find those. So... The assumption is that the model is the um, the model where expectation is correct. The data potentially has dirtiness or error in it. We want to find it. I think another question: if we flip, what's what in fact is the right thing? Is that situation where where the data is right? Like the data is what I observed. I observed, um, you know, these transactions or better than the I observed um, these decisions, right? And now I'm trying to figure out what model governs that. And so I could presuppose I have used this machine learning model, or let's very base, this regression model. Mm-hmm. I have this you know, linear regression model, and I fit that to this data. And so um, that is, and that's what I'm, I'm going to say now impose that, you know, the model assumes linearity, additivity, like, mm-hmm. and that's what my data looks like. It fits okay. So like, that's what I'm going to assume is right. And the question I think is, well, if we think about non-objection this way and say, well, the data's right and the models what I'm trying to, could be wrong, I'm trying to figure out, is I can then fit models to data 
And then he asked the, the data and model questions like, well, are there any systematic anomalies under this model, mm-hmm. right? Like, does anything look weird under this model? And if it does, what I've identified it is places where my model has been wrong, where I now need to go back and think about how to build a better model. You can think about very canonical, very simple examples. If you have a quadratic and you put a line on it, right? Mm-hmm. A linear regression, your model is going to be wrong in particular places, right? Yeah. Specifically, sort of like maybe like toward the middle or toward the end, or you can see this mm-hmm. kind of pattern of like, you know, poor, poor fit, lots of residuals that are maybe under, uh, sort of underestimated and then kind of overestimated and then kind of underestimated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that means is that you have your models aren't flexible. If, and in this dimension, it's missed something. Um, and so I think that when, tr- like, there's a whole area of anomaly detection that I'm, I've been working on very recently, like, like the last few months or so, um, trying to think about this question of can we, can we, can we flip what's right and what's wrong or what's, what is, um, what is considered a sort of like perfect and what is sort of, sort of potentially muddled? Mm-hmm. Um, and use all these same ideas to begin to investigate, let's say, models now, not just about investigate data uh, and find uh, and build better models um, and build better representations of reality. Because I do believe that in the end, it is true that you're not going to probably ever capture data generation process perfectly correct because especially human behavior is so complex. Yeah. But we can learn enough from them to understand and model them relatively well because humans are still pattern producing machines mm-hmm. and understand where our models are kind of gone awry, where our assumptions are kind of uh, misleading. Does that make sense? That kind of, that, that frame. You know, I, lo- I love that bit. Yeah. Cause that's, that, those are actually, it's funny. Um, it's a similar process that I go through when like the, these two things, like flipping them back and forth. I yeah. had never articulated them in that way. Like as in, I, I use different words to articulate uh, sure. si- some, uh, a similar thought process that I'm always shuffling back and forth from, um, yeah. So no, I definitely appreciate you sort of bringing some uh, some new vocabulary at least to me on that issue. Um, it's what I've been thinking a lot about. I think I think it has a lot of potential. I mean, so again, I mean, sort of you know, sort of it's something that it's an area I'm working in right now, and I'm trying mm-hmm. to build toward. And it, it leaks a little bit into things like fairness and bias in models, but also just kind of broadly building. You know, as we're building these very complex neural networks with parameters, and we don't know what the right. Uh, activation functions should be. We don't know what the right, um, how many layers we need. Like, we don't know, all these things we don't know things about, mm-hmm. you know, can we begin to have systematic procedures that will identify and highlight for us this information mm-hmm. by saying, well, the data is the data. This is the right data. How do I then build a model to capture that data? And is my model flexible enough or is it missing something? And where, if it is, where is it missing something? Mm-hmm. Do you just out of curiosity, if you don't mind me just shooting yeah. something out there, and if it doesn't make sense, that's fine. Uh, but like, uh, do you think that? So one way that we could do this is, you know, you create a model and you look at for residuals, or which is essentially you look at the data itself and see where it fails to fit. Yeah. But also wondering, like, uh, given you know now at this point we have like tensor libraries and everything like that. Yeah. To what extent can we sort of look at the sort of the model fitting process or the tensors or the change in likelihood with these models? Are, are those providing new pieces of evidence that we can start like piecing together or is that, is that weird? No, I think you're right. And it's something again, I've been thinking a lot about, this is the one I'm about with concert with my, with Skyler um, in his lab at, I, at IBM in Africa. But uh, I, I think you're, I think you're on something. I mean, this is something that I, that I think is very important. So let me, let me, give, let me, let me say it in this way and tell me this is what you're thinking about. 
Um, but when, so one, uh, so let, let's use deep learning because it's a very hot topic these days. And one, one sort of way um, we thought about sort of building models is things with like GANs, these adversarial networks where basically we have a model that's being, that's trying to learn, um, that's trying to generate basically the, something that looks at like the data and some other model, which is basically sort of deciding, okay, well, can I distinguish between what is generated and what is true? Mm-hmm. What is really from this data process, right? So if I, if, if the model, the sort of generator gets good enough at generating fake images or fake pieces of data, if it's captured data in the process very well, well, then it would have done it to a point where it can pull this very powerful trimmer, which can decide between what is generated and what is not, right? So this, mm-hmm. this adversarial sort of setup makes sense. It's a great framework, in my opinion, for thinking about these things. Um, but often what we're doing is we're, um, and I have I don't have an answer. This is something I'll get on thinking actively about. Yeah, yeah. Can you just go all dialectic on this and just yes. see okay. how far we get? Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. So, so like, what we're doing is we're basically saying, okay, like, did I think you know? Here's an example I generated. Okay, was it yes or no? And this is okay. This was yes. I, I can tell you that this is a fake one. And then you basically back propagate information about kind of okay. Here is you know this was a this was clearly a mistake. Let's update our weights, update our model in a way to make sure that we can maybe not make this mistake again. That's mm-hmm. clearly, you know, fallible. But again, there's information in this, both in terms of, I think, not just is it real or not, but understanding why, right? Like yeah. what pieces, what pixels, what components, what facets of this were clearly the problem. Mm-hmm. And secondly, when I update my information, I usually don't back up. I mean, like, there's only a certain set of things that are getting updated and formed, right? Th- th- this was a problem because some subset of my nodes or activations were off. And as a result, could I, you know, could I actually be smart about not only updating things intelligently because only some things actually need to be updated or thought about, but actually propagating not just yes or no, but like, and it's because this subset of information was a problem yeah. backwards, right? Um, and so this idea, but this idea makes sense even in, you know, take a, again, a re- like a linear regression and we're trying to fit a curve to it, mm-hmm. right? And I'm going to say like, okay, like, you know, here's my, here's my prediction, here's my error, whatever. And it's okay, well, like you have some pattern of behavior weird over here. Maybe I try to shift and fix it, right? Like, okay, like have my curve, have my line. All right, let me fix that. The problem is that if it's truly a polynomial and you're putting a line to it, you shift it one way, you fix that problem, you have a whole other set of problems. Yeah. Shift it back, set of problems, right? And so at some point, you can't solve the problem because you don't have enough degrees of freedom, enough complexity, right? Mm-hmm. And so can we propagate information back in a way to this model building such that the model then realizes, oh, okay, the problem is not that like I'm making mistakes because um, I don't have the right weight. It's because my complexity is too small. Right. I need a first degree, second degree, third degree, or first degree by, by definition is a mm-hmm. second, third degree, whatever, polynomial to capture the information, right? Mm-hmm. So can we actually have the same idea, but like not just by classifying yes or no, it was wrong or right, or yes or no, this was definitely generated by something or not, but actually propagating back information like, oh, and here is the reason why. It's this subset of dimensions. It's this subset of data. It's the 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 black males in your data that you're not properly properly modeling. Because mm-hmm. that to me, it's helpful for us to know, right? As we're mm-hmm. thinking about things. But if we can actually figure out a way to probably get back to a model itself, 
then we can begin to actually have these models sort of flexibly figure these things out in some nice way. Um, and it has, again, feelings of like boosting a little bit as well, probably yeah. hearing this. Like, there are things that I think try to do this, but not in the sort of pattern of anomalies way that I'm thinking about them. Again, mm-hmm. the point is I have no concrete way of thinking about it yet. I'm, this right. is actively what I'm working on, thinking about pushing forward, um, and hopefully might be a part of my research stream in the next few years is thinking about how to take an online section to, to model building, um, to bias both in terms of like sort of like fairness, but bias also like just bias in our estimation of data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that is cool. And I appreciate you uh, being brave enough just to like walk through your uh, string of thoughts because honestly, that, that is that is interesting. I, I think that actually walking through your thoughts on that, I actually have a clear idea of um, of what you're of what you're actually trying to deal with. Um, a similar idea um, that we um, that I've been sort of playing around with is um, it's sort of I'm not going to say decision theory because it's it not having okay. much to do with this, but like the okay. idea that. Um, uh, for example, if when uh, I'll just say make it very general, if I if I give you um, two pieces of advice, you know, there's a river and you can go over bridge A or bridge B, um, and what you don't and these two bridges are separated, so there's a key factor. Um, okay. You know, you can go over either bridge in order to achieve your goal of crossing the river. Right. But you don't want to do those. Take of course the average of two bridges sure. because yes. you will end up in the river. Um, and so. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is like uh, from a modeling perspective and uh, anomaly detection, because it comes back to this idea, like, um, do I believe, like, is the data right? Is the model right? You know, what, what, what's playing around here? Um, and wh- which one am I going to believe is my truth by which I'll then detect anomalies? Um, right. And basically the idea is that um, essentially I, I'm trying to play around with the idea of proposing two very like different models to the data and effectively how to parse through that information. So you might say, uh, just to keep it simple, um, that we might have a um, a, polyno- or, uh, a linear uh, data set and we have a quadratic data set, quadratic relationship. And it's like, we might know it's one of those, but we don't know which. And so effectively, um, it's the idea that we're going to propose these two different models and then effectively have to decide which one it is um, and then make our inference based on those. Um, so just to understand the question. So in the data, we're modeling some some outcome y, the function of inputs x, and you're saying for some subset of the x's, y is a linear function of it. Yes. Truthfully, yep. and yep. for some subset of the x's, y is truthfully a as a sort of a quadratic function. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, basically, and those okay. are what I believe the data generating functions are. So one one of these data generating functions is truthfully different than the other, but our data is mixed. Okay. And so basically, yeah. And so I guess uh, what, what, what I was trying to think of is, you know, um, you know, there, there's plenty of ways that you can test that. Um, you know, you can just start comparing, you can try fitting, things like that. Um, but I guess the issue that I was interested in is, you know, um, as the data becomes more and more mixed, is one thing where, you know, uh, for some of my previous work, like patients, um, where each patient is their own thing, you know, and therefore I can personalize yeah. it. Um, and therefore I can test both yeah. out reject one and proceed on with my happy self. Yeah. Um, but yeah. in some of these other scenarios where they are truly mixed. Um, and I was just wondering, like, um, it, this isn't a well-baked thought, but it is one of those things where I'm, th- I'm just trying to think like, is there, um, what, what, what at least would be like a good first order way. I and mean, this is one of the things I like to talk to smart people about, because even if they have like a quick gut feeling, you know, it, it might lead somewhere, even if it doesn't, it's not the quite right answer, but like, 
is it sort of a divide and conquer approach where I try to propose two models and compare? Or how, how would you approach a problem like that? It's a really good question. Um, it's a tough question. I, I've never thought about it before. Um, I guess my my gut on this, um, I, I have an idea, then I have I, I think about what kind of why. Yeah, I, maybe I'll, I, I do have a tendency to do this and I do this with my students often because I, I, it happened to me, sort of side story of why I'm going to, to talk out loud how I think. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, in grad school, I had a, uh, I had algorithms class as a PhD student um, and the, te- the professor of the class was Manuel Blum, who you may not know, but he's a tour and award winner. He's a brilliant, um, brilliant, brilliant mind um, and um, he did, did some work in social security. Um, uh, so a mathematician slash computer scientist, he, he, he sort of won a tour and award for his work. Um, and the best class I ever had in algorithms was his class because he would come in and say, like, here's a question. Like, we're going to try to do, you know, talk about splay trees. I don't know, whatever. Like, I don't know how they work, though. Can, like, someone explain them to me? And he would, like, or he'd be like, oh, let's look at He just, like, kind of walk through with somebody else kind of what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. And so while I might not understood a lot of them, I, I get to see how his brain worked mm-hmm. and what he got caught up on and why. So I found that very helpful as a learner. And so um, I do that a lot now with people. Um, and so that's why, again, I walk through my logical book. I have no idea what I'm going to do, but here's what I'm thinking. Maybe that's helpful. Maybe someone will feed into this and solve this problem and answer it for me, um, which, uh, which which is great. So in this question, um, you've posed to me, I don't have a good answer, but my logic is, well, okay, so there's going to be some subset of people. Like, so in your argument, there basically there are data points that are truly linear, sort of data points that are truly quadratic and data points that are potentially some mix. And so the easy part to me is, well, find the people who fit the one of them, right? And so I can, yeah. I can do something simple as like, all right, I'm going to either sort of, uh, I can do Bayesian where I have priors of both these and kind of figure out posteriorly which one you, you, you sort of maximize the posterior probability. Mm-hmm. I can do detection where I use, uh, I, I sort of have, you know, I sort of say, here's my expectation based on the linear, expectation based on the quadratic, and then find people who are anomalous given the expectations. And so, boom, you pull them out immediately. And so if you're anomalous under the linear, then you must be either a quadratic or a mix. And vice versa. And so, like, you can do these in different ways, but the idea, kind of canonically, for me is like, how do I get the people who are like obviously one or the other, or whatever, mm-hmm. out? That yeah. gets separated, picked out. Mm-hmm. And then the mix becomes a challenge, right? Because my suspicion is that um, it's not going to be like this, like, perfectly, you know, your 50%, like, you take your outcome 50% of linear yeah. and then put another 50% of your the quadratic one and they kind of average them together. So, it's going to mm-hmm. be some weird functional form. Um, and that's the part where I'm not quite sure what to do because they, to me, that the answer is that they're both right, but they're also both wrong because mm-hmm. the true answer is some joint um, of them. And I'm not sure what that functional form of the joint of them looks like. Right. So that's the part I don't really, I don't really have a good answer for. I mean, I, I can imagine, again, my first view is, well, I have a knowledge section is one option. So if if you don't look too anomalous under the linear, but you fall into the mix, well, then I'll kind of say, well, like you're mixed, but like you're dominated by, by, by the linear one, mm-hmm. or maybe vice versa for the quadratic one. Um, but again, that just helps me get down to like the, the other group that is like anomalous under both or whatever. Yeah. And then I just don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess the answer is philosophically it's both and neither. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't actually know. It's a good question though. Yeah, no, it's it, it is interesting, and um, I, I I enjoyed just you talking there because yeah, um, the sort of 
the divide and conquer approach I was saying is like, take what I can easily figure out, yeah, put those aside. And now yeah. those aren't my problem anymore. And yeah. then it's like, okay, now what's the next set? It's like, okay, here's the mix. It's like, oh yeah. man, these ones are a real problem. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but yeah, cool. Um, are are we running close on your time or um, uh, how much? Do we I, have? Probably, I probably yeah, I've got probably another seven to ten minutes. So, um, so cool. If we if we if you have uh, we we can sort of begin to wrap up if you want, but happy to take another ten minutes with you. Perfect. Yeah, I wouldn't mind um something that I uh so well one one thing that I'm interested in is um you've you move fluidly between different subject matters in a way that I think is very cohesive. Yeah. Um, it it looks good from the outside. Um, Yeah. But, um, one thing that I've noticed is that it seems like a lot of, um, people who are early in their technical careers seem to be much more towards the issue of, um, I guess, uh, siloing some of these techniques. And so for example, just as a quick example, you know, um, I was talking to a group of people in machine learning, so they do statistical machine learning. Okay. And I was, uh, was going to give them a presentation on uh, Bayesian optimization. So just okay. let them through and just ask them, it's like, okay, well, who's done opt- an op- solved an optimization problem before? And only the group lead uh, raised the hand. And, and it was like, really? so here's the thing. It's like, has anyone solved a linear regression problem? That's an optimization problem. That's an optimization problem. Like, and, yeah. and so it's it's interesting to me. And I I, di- I didn't do this to be a jerk. Like, I don't want to be the guy who quizzes people during sure. uh, during those things. Like, you don't be that guy. Whatever right. any guy you want to be, don't be that guy. Don't but be that at the guy. same time, at the same time, like, I feel like I would be failing people in some extent to just realize, like, wait, real quickly, let's say something here. You know, um, we have OLS. This is there's an analytic solution to this optimization problem. If it's too big, yep. if the computation is too big for the analytic solution, we have an analytic solution to the gradients, which allows us to then solve it right, because exactly. it's convex. And okay, cool. Yep. And now for logistic regression, we have a an analytic solution to the gradients. We don't have an analytic solution to the actual solution. We yep. plug and chug. And so, and then for example, Bayesian optimization, what do we have? Well, we actually have an analytic solution to the gradient. However, it's a non-convex problem. Yep. Um, and so we can go from there. But you know, you, you you get the idea. And by that, I mean there's an solution to the gradient of the Gaussian process model that we're trying to fit. So the, the likelihood. So yeah. um before someone complains at me in the comment section. But yeah, um but the idea here I is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um the, the the idea here is that people were separating these things like I think far too much than they thought. And I, I know some people just like I don't want to say more than I know or something like that, but what are what are good ways? Is it just the practice where you just practice and solve problems and you start pulling these things together? Or have you found I mean, anything? I, think, I, think, I mean, I think I think you're onto something here. And again, I don't want to again, I do I too try to be as precise about what I do and don't do or know and don't know very well because I don't overstep my bounds. And I give all de- deference to people who are far superior and far more knowledgeable than me in each one of these individual areas. So mm-hmm. there are people who, you know, who I look up to in statistical machine learning, like, you know, who you know, and, and I would never sort of say, oh, I, I, if they say something and I might disagree or whatever, that they're wrong. But I think about this all as, I don't know, like math, stat, like problem solving in some way. I guess I don't have the right sort of like discipline specific definition. I know mean, some people get very sensitive about, well, machine learning is different than statistics. And people say, no, it's just statistics, but rebranded. And mm-hmm. I don't really wage into those battles or wars, honestly, because I leverage all those tools. But I think I don't have an answer of how to build it. I can tell you why I think I built it. 
And it goes back to what I said before, is that I never came at this as, I'm a computer scientist, let me do computer science. Mm -hmm. I came at this as, there is a fundamental question or problem we want to solve. Let me come at it as a scientist and use the tools I know, probably primarily, then other things I might learn to solve them. I mean, if you remember, I, my sort of at Heinz is, uh, the Heinz policy where I, I sort of primarily said as a graduate student, like is a school of public policy and information system. Or I should say, the Heinz College has a school of information system to management, public policy management, which relates to basically people who study IS and IT um, and people who much more, more and more economically focused who study policy decisions in these contexts. Um, and I sit in a business school right now. Actually, I guess I should mention this. I'm actually leaving the University of Minnesota. Oh. I'm actually joining the Harvard Business School uh, in July. Oh, congrats. Uh, so, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm really excited about the technology operations management unit. So, I'll, I'll start that in July. But I've my entire sort of academic career, even post graduate school, have sat in business schools, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, in order to think about those questions, which are big, important questions, which impact, I mean, organizations, policy, government, um, all these things, um, and sometimes abstract them, you have to be well-versed in thinking about and structuring unstructured, not unstructured necessarily technical problems, right? But mm -hmm. unstructured like verbal processes or policy or business problems. Um, and so I think if you chase after, I was always very passionate about making an impact in the world around me based on how I grew up and what was important to me. And I was never beholden to my discipline or my title or whatever. Again, mm -hmm. the, the, the challenge of that is that if you ask like, I'm not, and I say this is my aspiration, but I'm not like famous or well known, I think, in any particular sort of like, you know, main discipline. I would even argue that even in anomaly section, so I think that's probably where I'm most known, if anything, I'm not sort of a flagship brand name. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like whenever anyone talks to me and I talk about the work I care about, the work I do, and the little work, the little papers I do write, I think it can be considered very engaging because I'm thinking about those things. Mm -hmm. Often I get from reviewers, my issues are you spend, you know, three pay, I have a paper, uh, sort of an R&R, &R, JMLR right now. And one of the, one of the responses we got back, which was honestly not incorrect was you spend two, three pages building up this story about this thing, right? Mm -hmm. I write for the reader. I write for the, somebody who wants to understand the problem. And you could just say, well, you know, cite, cite, cite a paper and say, okay, here's the problem context. Like, you know, Define it mathematically, cite some papers and be done and do that in two sentences. Where I build up, I help you see the tensions and the problems. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you start thinking about the problem, not the math, but the actual underlying problem mm -hmm. and the tensions and the challenges, then I think what that gives you is uh, practice flexing that muscle. So you can begin to translate from, you know, social science questions, business questions, policy questions, technical questions. Uh, statistics questions, machine learning questions, and sort of see the thread that persists across them and kind of say, okay, this is an example of this problem. Here's how I can translate this, this question of fitting a model. Mm -hmm. When I talk to an OR person, it's just, you know, something that may be a linear program or a quadratic program. Mm -hmm. At a is just sort of, you know, maximizing some, some likelihood or, you know, I'm just trying to sort of, again, optimize some, some objective function in the statistical sense, right? Like it sort of like, it becomes this, these are all kind of sort of, on the same thread or band and we just sort of present them or interpret them or, or explain them in different ways depending on my audience. Mm -hmm. um, so I've given the same talk to vastly different audiences and have both audiences, both technical ones and maybe more applied ones or 
policy related or business related ones appreciate what I'm doing because I speak to them in a way that I think communicates it speaks to the tensions and the problems that they appreciate. And I think that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, I, I, I like that a lot. Um, actually, it reminds me of uh, one time I was called into the uh, the Master of St. Cross College, um, so okay. at, back at Oxford. And because yeah. um, basically we had to, they give you money to go and present something at some conference. And then they basically say, okay, come back and justify like what you're doing. Like, tell us what you are up to. And yeah. um she basically uh, said at the end, so I, I showed her my work, you know, because it has all the videos of the Gaussian process. Being I love the videos. I remember when we first yeah. met, the videos were very compelling. Yeah, yeah this is, this is, it's my only way to make friends of these uh, these things. But um, yeah, she was like, uh, yeah, at the end, she was like, yeah, I really, um, when I saw your presentation's title, I was okay. really not looking forward to this, uh, to this like meeting, but I really enjoyed that. Uh, but, you know, it's like, because again, you do, you build the motivation, the why, the so what, um, yeah. so much. And people are w- much more willing to go farther with you technical. Like when you don't smack people down technically because you, you gauge the audience's technical yeah. ability and you measure it. But people are willing to take that one extra technical step if they yeah. give a crap about what you're doing. And yeah. just explaining that, like it doesn't have to be exactly what they're doing. But um, yeah, no, I really appreciate that example. Excited to hear about you uh, going to Harvard. I will... We will we will have a live podcast sometime. I'm I'm going to go up to uh, New England this fall, and um, or are you going to be in New England this fall? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I'm because I, I, I've missed the leaves for several years now, and so okay. I'm going to go. I'm just going to not knock out. Uh, go Connecticut. I'll swing through Boston, and we'll uh, we'll do live podcasts. Oh. We'll look at leaves, and when you get to when you get to New England, definitely uh, connect with me. Send me an email. Um, uh, we can connect and. Have another conversation if you want. I enjoy these things. Obviously, I do it for a living, so I'm happy to talk more about it. Um, and yeah, also we can we can we can have a, we can actually have a beer and, and chit chat just about life as well. Sort mm-hmm. of off the record. Off the record sounds good. Well, Ed, thanks so much today. I appreciate your time, and I you really enjoyed what me. you said. Yeah, I appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really wanna go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you wanna go totally crazy beyond that, forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, etc. like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employers' views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.